Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me is my co-host... Tis I, McGill. Yeah, McGill. Doing the co-DM duty, it is the 19th of May, and, uh... Still in the plague times here in Canada. Uh, God, is it the nineteenth, man? <laughs> did you know they're uh, like they're they're starting to get out in uh, New Zealand? Oh, really? My my sister pointed out that if you've ever played the game Pandemic, that's it's always either New Zealand, Greenland, or Madagascar that gets off easy. So, and for me, it's always been Madagascar. Have you ever played that game? I have played Pandemic, but I haven't played it a lot. Not certainly not enough to uh, notice trends. The one I play is Plague Inc. Ah, I mean, also very classic. Uh, but let's not dwell too much on the uh, pestilence of the times. <laughs> I just wanted to, you know, say at least good on those New Zealanders having having some fun. Hope it works out for them. And uh, in the meantime, we've got session 14, which makes this episode 15. Uh, mine is Operation Reason Sleep. You've got a chapter title as well. Lights over Alcatraz. And uh, do we have a preference uh, who starts today? Why don't you take it? All right, well, let me tell you, I had, like, no notes for this operation. Um, I may, you know, I may have had notes at some point. I'm, I'm sure I did, uh, but I could not find them anywhere. And uh, it is in a point in the campaign where the details get a bit hazy to where I really had to do some, like, reverse engineering of like okay what was i trying to do at this point in the campaign and so <laughs> um you know one thing obviously we've been over how i use metal albums and tracks from metal albums and stuff and so i had to like go to look at the metal album and be like okay look at these track titles and see like what was I doing at this point? Because um, the only note I have in my like overall chronology for this point in the story is actually a little like a side event that I had take place completely, um, basically completely unrelated to the operation. It was just something, it was like a meanwhile in Drail thing that I had occur that I had had in my mind and decided to deploy that. I decided, I guess, there wasn't enough going on in Drail or, like, I wanted to spice things up a bit. So I just had, like, I established a little background um, event. And uh, so we'll get to that, but I didn't have any notes for, like, what the actual operation was. But... Um, I think the biggest help was that I was looking through this metal album... Uh, which is uh, Kena by the band 
No, it's 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 Mourner by the band Kana, and I've named sort of like the main villain of this arc Mourner, and Kana, as I mentioned, is a circle of hell that is then Nicania in the D&D cosmology. So I went ahead and, and went with that. Um, but I had to look at this album and like specifically look at the track names, and luckily what jumped out at me is you have like, a lot of uh names or, or like things that look like names like there's uh uh permanio carmen which is like i think like carmen permanent carmen or something i don't know i kind of read it as that and then that became a hag named carmen the immortal and i know that because i remember she like becomes like a major villain so i i know i i took that from this album and then i also see here we got a track called constantine the blind and it's like oh yeah i definitely had a dude that they had to fight called constantine the blind and so um sort of managing to try and go back to whatever i was visualizing at the time and then using that information i was able to sort of cobble together the memory so um, as I had mentioned last time, the team had just shown up in uh, Kania, Mephisto's or Mephistopheles, eight la Eighth Layer of Hell, which is all like a, a frozen wasteland with uh, glacier citadels and whatnot. And um, the I think the most obvious thing or the place to start with, um, okay, we've got the Nightside Eclipse have infiltrated hell for some reason we have to figure out what we're after what's the first thing people would be after in hell and the idea was like maybe they're trying to break someone out so the operation basically sort of took place in like a uh like a prison built around and inside of a glacier and uh it was generally like it started off pretty safe as being sort of like a guided, um, like, you know, they've cleared things with Mephistopheles. Two of them have like made oaths to him. So they're in pretty good with him. He's got devils everywhere working for him here. He's got imps to show them around. So like an imp and uh, like a, a prison guard sort of lead them around this glacier. And they're just looking for like reports of anything suspicious. And, um, they sort of like step by step, like first there was like, oh, there was reports of something going on in this block. And then they find that like one of the cells is empty and, uh, then they start looking for this prisoner and that leads them to sort of like this escape in progress that, uh, they sort of, it's like the nightside eclipse are like in the process of withdrawing some like key uh personnel from this prison and like on their way out the team catches them and like they sort of like um basically one of the lieutenants that they were pulling out this constantine the blind guy was the one who stayed behind to fight off the mpoc agents while mourner and carmen the immortal uh a hag that um they had uh rescued um sort of got away and uh one thing to, like i i remember i had had 
I don't know if the players really got into this much, but there was a sense of like, or or I had set up in my mind, like these were people like Mourner was basically a king or conqueror from years past who was now undead working for the Nightside Eclipse. And the people that he was extracting from hell were people who served him in his like original kingdom or reign. So Carmen the Immortal is like his uh his sort of magical advisor and now she's like a hellbound hag. And uh Constantine the Blind is this uh um I think he was like his, you know the champion of his kingdom or whatever. And uh of course he had been blinded in the battle that killed him and so now he was like this blind warrior who could see without eyes and uh so yeah some cool like infernal undead mashup stuff uh with like basically something where i was initially just trying to build out more of that setting of like cania like the frozen hellscape and like you know them being on the side of the devil so like they're able to walk freely amongst these like armies of like uh ice devils which are these bug looking things with huge glaives and whatnot um you know the whole time they're like on edge they're worried that something's gonna go wrong but uh what what i was really taking the opportunity to do in this operation was like show off um more elements of like you know flesh out what this place was uh in addition to building up to like a climactic battle where i would introduce some more of the uh the mpox most wanted for this uh this act and uh as for the meanwhile in drail thing that was in my like chronology notes um, back in Drail, if you recall, I had a character in the southern capital of Stormgate by the name of Inkpin. He was a gnome crime boss. Uh, he was, uh, sort of... His, his angle as a villain, basically, is, like, alchemy, you know? Like, he has all these, uh, poisons and, and experimental, uh explosive alchemy based explosives and like weird drugs that he's trying to fill the streets with and uh one thing that i had built up in the sort of spin-off game with the detectives was that um like they ended up working for inkpin at one point in that little spin-off and um one of the sort of quests that they got offered was basically there was a gang war going on in the streets of Stormgate that Inkpin wanted dealt with uh, between a gang of like a gang called the Bunnies and a gang <laughs> called the Moths. And the moths were like pyromaniacs. But the thing is, like they they ended up not dealing with either of those and uh basically as a sort of eventual consequence of that um i had this incident where inkpin is in one of his alchemy shops and then uh the moths uh strike with their patented uh, arson 
and it causes a huge alchemical explosion, which leaves uh, Inkpin like uh, disfigured by alchemical agents. And like he ends up with like he has to he has these like black veins coming out of his eyes and he has to wear like shades to cover him up. And it basically <laughs> was just like the transition of of like Inkpin from like regular villain to sort of like super villain villain, which was just something I wanted to establish. <laughs> awesome metal yeah and uh that all came back you know at least next campaign if not sooner but uh yeah as it was uh i mean the thing was at this point that now they knew that they were looking for both mourner and this carmen the immortal character and uh the question was where they were gonna go after uh busting out of that prison um, the hope being that the uh, the players could catch them before they escaped hell. So I want to ask about your notes because you were saying this one you had to sort of reverse engineer based on what you had, which was kind of incomplete, right? I mean, what I had was in terms of like I had the note that said that this was around the time that um, Inkpin like got blowed up and became a supervillain but i had no notes regarding the session i just had to um look at the track names on the album that i was using (laughs) around the time of this session like trigger your memory exactly and that's that's all i could do (laughs) How often do you like actively take note of what your players are doing? I'm asking, I'm burying the lead a bit here. I'm asking this because quite often what happens with my notes is it's all just like what I'm running from the DM's perspective. And sometimes I note down things that my character, that the characters have done, uh, the, rather the players have done, uh, or, you know, little things like if they pick up an important item, I'll note that down. But quite often I find like I'll be going through my notes and I'll discover a note where it's like, Oh yeah, that thing, that thing that my player did just completely independently of me and just said like, I want to do this and I let them do it, but I made no note of it. That happened actually with the adventure I'm going to describe where uh, one of my players picked up something at the end of the last adventure, just of their own accord. And it later came into play, but, uh, I hadn't noted down that he picked it up, so I failed to mention it on our last episode. Yeah, um, there's... There's definitely things that I note down that the players do, um, I, but I I do agree with, with what you said, where it's like, usually the notes are mostly just my end of it. Um, I've also, I've mentioned before how, like, oftentimes my notes will like the most complete of my notes will often just look like a whole bunch of words that have check marks over them because I've been checking off each point that I covered as I cover them in the game. Right. Um, It's almost like you're preparing it more like a presentation than a DM module. And so you know what you're going to talk about. You just need to make a list. So you remember to cover everything, right? 
I mean, if they were sloppier about searching for items, there'd be less checked off items in those notes. But um, no, they're generally pretty thorough about I find my players are generally pretty thorough about exploring all the things I have there. So, yeah, I do um, end up kind of ticking off everything. And, and yeah, it does kind of unfold. And, and I at this point, you know, that's part of the design of it is like, I put in the notes that I expect will be most important to the story unfolding at a good pace. Um, but, you know, that's not to say that I don't ever note down what players do. It's just, um, I guess, the for, for, again, like, I can't really speak for the notes for this session because they are completely lost to time as far as I can tell. But um, with my notes right now, a big part of it is that I lay out the majority of my notes for each operation when I start the act or the arc. And um, then so so what happens is that my notebooks end up with like you get like 10 pages that are just like rundowns of what the operations for these for this arc are going to be but then after that there's much more freeform notes and that's where you'll see like oh uh note character did this or uh like an interesting sort of possible progression path for something or a consequence for something interesting interesting it sounds like we both well, it sounds like we both approach our notes from a similar perspective, but uh, keep them in a different way. I don't have little check marks. Mine's all digital. I, I type it all out and I run it like off my laptop and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I feel like having the notebook is a pretty important part of it for me. Um... In Although hindsight, I kind of, of wish I'd always done that. Like, that's a cool artifact to have. But no, I mean, I've just always found it easier to, like, have, you know, and I can have, like, all my source books and everything up on my computer at the same time. It's just a lot easier to keep track of the whole thing. It's true. What I usually do is I have my, you know, I have my stuff on the computer, but then I have my notebook in my lap. Uh, so it's, like, pretty immediate, uh, you know jumping my eyes around but um i think it's also worth noting like uh, i think an important part of the notebook for me is that like i can also do little doodles in it and stuff mm -hmm. um and that's like that goes a long way to like jogging my memory is like oh yeah i remember drawing that character or whatever um i think uh apart from that like the other thing is that it's a big part of my process now that I do not, I don't lay out any details for like what will happen in an operation before I get to the arc that that operation is taking place in. Like, um, so what I said about having the, the space in my notebook, that's like just notes for, or like just pure, rundowns of like operations like that really helps me in terms of like i have a solid block where i can flip to and be like okay this is all the arc all the operations for this arc and i have all the information for them um but also like 
doing it all at, at one time, it's, it's interesting. It's like a really important part of the process for me because it's like whenever there's the turnover of the arc, I have this huge like creative rush where I'm like, all right, it's time to build the next arc. And I can like really allow myself to dig into it. Um, and the trick is I have to not, indulge myself before that point otherwise i'm gonna start like planning out stuff you know getting ahead of myself and planning out stuff that <laughs> in reality i may never get to play out i get that I, I i i understand that it's funny you know like just <laughs> comparing our campaigns you think of your campaigns in these the these arcs Whereas each of my campaigns has like one big arc and maybe like a few smaller ones within it. But I always treat it like, I don't know, like a season of a TV show or something like that, where it's kind of episodic and kind of serial, but it does it. I, ne I rarely do like multi-season campaigns with, with multiple arcs the way you do it. It's just yeah. interesting difference. I was actually going to say like, I really do like to think of it as like, you know, comparing it to a TV show or, or like to seasons. But for me, yeah, absolutely. My things are like um, purposely multi-season as it were. I guess, you know what? I thinking on it just now, I would posit that the reason I approach my campaigns this way is because something that always bugged me when I was younger and I would either try to run games or like play games, uh, play RPGs with my friends where they were DMing, is we'd never get to finish them. You know, it would always bug me because I want to know what happens, right? And so I think maybe that informed my decision to do sort of shorter campaigns that usually last like a dozen adventures or maybe up to 20 adventures. Uh, but then I like kind of wrap it up and take a break and maybe do a different one or maybe come back to the same one later like I did with Minds of Metal and Wheels, but always at least giving a conclusion so that there's that satisfaction of having like, you know, made it to an end. It's tough yeah. to end stuff. Everybody's, you know, started writing a book or started doing a project, but so many fewer people actually finish that stuff. And it's funny because I think there was definitely a time when I was less disciplined as like a game master. And so I was always saying like, oh, let's try playing this and, and let's start this game. And then I, we'd like play three sessions and then I'd be like, ah, I'm tired of this. Let's play this thing. And like, um, I think that I have very much matured from that person to become this person who just like does these very long, like, like I will do very long adventures just to have that payoff of like, yeah, we made it. We did the whole thing. Um, which may be part of like, I know that period where I was like just jumping from campaign to campaign all the time took place after I ran like a very long-term Scion game. And I think part of it may be just like looking back and being like, well, I had more fun with the one than the other. Like, 
I think there I got more value out of the one than the other. I just wanted to I just wanted to get out a weird random thought that I had that like I almost lost and I just want to get it out there while I can. I think maybe my like cuz it is it is kind of crazy to like you know um thinking of my campaign as like a TV show if you think of the arcs of the seasons then the campaigns are like I don't know like whole series like like next generation or something but they do like follow each other chronologically and i was thinking it's kind of like digimon you ever watch digimon (laughs) no i never did watch digimon but like so basically digimon like if you go back to like the first i i have so much trouble with their use of the terminology of like season and series because it confuses me but Basically, they have a similar thing where it's like the first group of main characters from Digimon went on like many, many arcs that were full of mini adventures. And then like the next, the next big Digimon was about a new group of characters that then also did the same thing where like they would go they would have big arcs that were full of smaller adventures and then have like big boss Digimon to fight at the end. Um, and like, I guess now that I think of it, there is a lot of similarity in my campaign because it even has the element of like characters from the previous series come back as like older, cooler characters. And it's like, Oh man, they're back. I remember them. Yeah. Something else that, uh, I sort of, uh, internally remarked upon about how you describe your campaign layouts and stuff is you're really you're really creating your own kind of George R. R. Martin, J.R.R. Tolkien, or even uh Marvel Cinematic Universe style worlds where any number this, of RRs. Yeah, all the R R Tom R. R. Lando. Um Marvel. You should really you should add R R. You should be Tom R. R. Lando. <laughs> but uh your your stories go on outside of the campaigns characters sort of still inhabit your worlds way off yonder whereas after minds of metal and wheels part two i never i've never gone back to that setting i've created new settings or i've gone i've gone to eberron with my players or greyhawk but uh i haven't revisited minds of metal and wheels i haven't done this interweaving that you've done which is really cool i mean i don't make the comparison to someone like george r r martin lightly like you've definitely created a world i mean uh i thank you for that it's it's funny because like on on the one hand i do want to say like when you say you know you haven't gone back to minds of metal and wheels and you start new campaigns i Obviously, I'm fully open to starting new campaigns that don't take place in this world. Um, like I'm running this cyberpunk campaign, but but also more than that, like I suspect that at some point I will be done with like I expect I'll be done with the sort of current paradigm of like the Nightside Eclipse and the Empok 
sooner than I'll be done with Drail, but eventually I'll be done with Drail as well. Like, I don't see these things as like I'm going to stay in them forever as uh, either. Right, um, but you've also, like, Drail is D&D enough that if anybody just wants to play D&D, you can set it in Drail and it won't be disruptive and it will immediately, like have this rich and elaborate backstory that you've been creating over years and years. Yeah, that's true. Um, I also wanted to note that, like, it's funny for me to be saying this about, like, oh, well, I'm not going to stay here forever because um, I remember going to lunch or something with a, another friend of mine who's a DM, and he was telling me, like, yeah, I'm thinking the next campaign is going to be like sort of the last in the trilogy. And then I'm going to like do a new setting. And I'm like, oh, really? It seemed like a really big setting. Like, are you sure? Like, you, you don't have more stories to tell there? Like, there's all these nations you've mentioned that we haven't been to. Are we going to go to all of them next campaign? And like, I basically put the seed in his mind like, no, actually, I'm going to do at least four games now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like that mitch hedberg joke right where he says uh he got a friend of his to score him some drugs and one of them was adderall yeah and it made his attention span really long and people would tell him people would tell me a story and then they'd stop and i'd be like no wait there's got to be more to that right i didn't want it to end <laughs> i mean the, the mitch hedberg one i always come back to is uh I try to come up with something funny and then I write it down. Or if the pen is too far away, I convince myself that what I thought of wasn't funny. <laughs> Classic Mitch. So, your story. I, sorry for interrupting. Oh, no problem at all. That was really insightful. Um, Digimon. Digimon. So... Uh, chapter three of Minds of Metal and Wheels, part two, Lights Over Alcatraz. Uh, so before I get into the meat of this adventure, I realized while I was going through my notes and thinking back on just the past few adventures that I've been describing in this campaign, that uh, much like my notes, I've been doling out information on the podcast just sort of like the through the perspective of the players. I haven't really talked about the grander scheme of what is going on. You know, I've been sort of cagey about the identity of, uh, of the ultimate villains and things like that. So I figured it's time. Let's pull back the curtain a bit uh, and I can talk about it. Well, and I, I do want to say that, like, I think <clears throat> I certainly choose like i sort of uh have noted out in my mind like when is going to be the appropriate time to reveal certain things that were going on in the background um like i th I, I don't think that you necessarily have to show your hand as it were well fair enough but i mean this is a dm discussion podcast and i'm this is this campaign is like over a decade old now so well you guys aren't gonna know that the truth about odium for <gasps> like at least a hundred episodes or something well okay i mean i'm not gonna i don't know about a hundred but i wanted That's to talk crazy. about like Sorry. the inside baseball side of uh how i approached writing this campaign um 
I said before that I poached a lot more stuff and like lifted stuff from uh, adventure modules, campaign setting books, things like that. D20 past, the D20 past campaign setting. Uh, I use a lot of stuff from there and a lot of independent modules. And the reason I did it that way wasn't actually just because I had less time. It was also because I wanted to give my players a lot more freedom in how they investigated the ultimate mystery that I was presenting to them. And I also, I've been talking about this a lot, but I wanted to incorporate time travel at some point and a really easy way to make sure that you have like literally every detail noted down thoroughly is to use things like pre-written modules because it's all there. You're not going to lose those notes. Even if you lose your copy, you can note down what you were drawing from and track it down later. And so... That was one aspect of it, but I also wanted to present this like a whole bunch of branching paths where the players will arrive in a place and I'll I'll basically I'll give them like a Borderlands bounty board. I'll give them a selection of little quests, uh, things that they've been sent there to look into. And some most of them will have like clues that lead to new places and stuff like that, but others will just be incidental. They have to take care of this thing while they're in the area, like the Desert Raiders from uh, the first adventure. And so I used a lot of modules and borrowed material so that I could basically make it like a big flowchart. Um, and in this case, like one of the first things that happened in this adventure is the players arrived in San Francisco and they met with their contact there and he just told them like weird stuff is going on here are a few things that have been happening and then i let the players decide which way they wanted to go and i did a similar thing at the end of the last adventure where they got onto dr shiro's submarine and in investigating his lab they found that weird glowing crystal and then they also found a map of a specific area of brazil and I basically gave them the choice there. It's like you go into California, go into Brazil, because uh, they, they, in testing the crystal, discovered it had come from a mine in California. Um, so you go into California, you go into Brazil. And I have an adventure lined up for each of those decisions. So uh, that was also one of my motives in borrowing a lot of material. Just making it easier to have like this huge selection of adventures and paths that the players can travel down. But I'm not going to also wind up creating way more stuff than I'll ever use. I can just borrow what people have already written. So um, a couple more notes just about the nitty gritty of Minds of Metal and Wheels Part 2. There were a few things that were like my goals in creating this campaign. Things that I wanted to incorporate just from a plot perspective. Uh, we'd gone to space, we'd gone to the sea, we've gone to a city in the clouds last time. This time I wanted to explore the fourth dimension. I wanted to explore time travel. And uh, man, it's pretty funny uh, how many things in pop culture have played with similar plot lines to the ones that have existed in my campaigns. You know, I talked about how uh, while 
Minds of Metal and Wheels Part 1, the underwater city was inspired by Rapture from the game Bioshock. And then I did a city in the sky that was inspired by Rapture, but just like of my own creation. And later, of course, Bioshock did Columbia in Bioshock Infinite and the city in the sky. Um, and uh, the, the big showdown on Mars where there's an ambush and suddenly the heroes have the upper hand because they have a secret fleet. Well, and that happened in Rise of Skywalker recently. The time travel in Minds of Men and the Wheels Part 2, it's a lot like Avengers Endgame, actually. Uh, which in itself is also a lot like Back to the Future Part 2. I wanted to get the players traveling through time and revisiting key points from the previous campaign, but from a different perspective. Uh, and ultimately, having all that lead to the point where they go way, way, way back in time, referencing the end of the previous campaign, they go far back enough to save Professor Sutter's life uh, and have it all sort of wrap up in a neat little bow. Uh, so that was my, one of my goals. Um, and like I said, because of that, I needed very thorough notes, so I used a lot of pre-written stuff. Um, plot point number two I wanted to explore, I wanted to have war brewing. And uh, you will find out through this adventure uh, a lot more about what's going on. Uh, the players won't find out as much, but basically uh, there's another... The High Martians are the Martian race that are like elves and, you know, I've referenced also Romans. Um, there's another race of Martians called the Hill Martians, uh, and they have an ongoing conflict with the High Martians. They consider them enemies. I, I drew upon a lot of historical, like, ongoing, like, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, things like that, that just go on and on and on. Um, so the Germans have allied with the Hill Martians, and they're going to start a war and overthrow the Earth and conquer the High Martians. That's the sort of the ultimate threat that is brewing in the background as the players investigate these weird goings-on and the assassination of the, uh, the High Martian King. And then finally, I wanted to add personal elements, give the characters personal stakes, and directly connect them into the grander plot. And a lot of that stuff comes about just by player decisions, you know, things that the players want to do, and those became their, become their characters' personal arcs. But I also wanted just to have a direct personal connection into the grander plot line. And in this case, I decided that Lady Anna had a wastrel cousin named Markov Varkalak, who's just like a degenerate gambler and a constant womanizer and a drunk, constantly getting into trouble and he got so in over his head that he has found himself indebted to you know this crime boss and it's, he just keeps getting himself deeper and deeper into trouble and eventually that was going to lead to him selling out Lady Anna in some way and criminals coming after the party and uh, what's interesting is uh, in the last adventure when they were in Deepwater Bay uh, in Hong Kong, um, I had noted down, I, I looked back on my campaign, my adventure notes, and I had noted down that there was a ship in the harbor at that time that Markov is on. 
and depending what the players did, like if they staked out the docks at a particular time or went to a particular place, they might have encountered him sooner, but they didn't end up doing that. And so I have his story kind of running parallel to theirs in the background. He doesn't go to all the places that they do, uh, like he is not going to be in, in San Francisco, but eventually uh, it will, you know, wrap back around and, and come into play. Um, so with all of that said, let's get into this adventure. Uh, I mentioned before that there was something in my notes that I had forgotten about. And that is that in Dr. Ishiro's secret lab on the submarine at the end of the last adventure, where he was creating morose, he was turning people into animal people, these like gross animal hybrids, uh, he had a caged tiger cub and Rath McGrath, the brawler, freed the cub, named it Whiskers, and decided to keep it as his pet. So there's this, like, semi-feral tiger cub on the lantern now that McGrath, like, wrestles with and is in the process of taming. Um, so at the beginning of this adventure, McGrath is playing with his cat. Everybody's, you know, snoozing on the lantern. Uh, Abendroth, I can't remember because I don't have his character sheet in front of me, unfortunately. But uh, he had discovered, like, an inventor character class uh, that was part of D20 Modern, or he'd found it, I think, in maybe the uh, D20 Past campaign setting. But one of the uh, features of his class is that he could invent something, uh, and it, like, set a DC that he had to pass, and then it also set, uh, just by a dice roll, a number of days that it would take to create his invention. Uh, and that that number increases based on the difficulty of it. So basically, he'd concoct this idea of what he wanted to invent, do a check to make sure it's feasible, and then s based on how difficult it would be, set a number of days. And throughout the campaign, he'd be like, okay, how many days is it until we get to San Francisco? I want to spend as much time as possible working on my invention. Uh, and his invention is he wanted to make himself like a Tesla cannon, basically. A big gun that would... A lightning gun that would shoot bolts of electricity. So he's working well, he on... started that. with a jetpack. Yeah. <laughs> Not me. It wasn't me. Um, and, of course, Quelln is also with them. Remember that? Yes. No, I remember Quelln. Because he's important. It's very appropriate that you just said, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. That's what reminded me to, to note Quelln. Gregor is driving. Reese is helping with Abendroth's invention. I think I covered all that. Everybody else is sound asleep. They arrive in San Francisco. It's full of airships and watercraft. I found, like, old photos of San Francisco in 1890. So you can just pull those up and show the players, and it already looks, like, wild and steampunky, especially compared to San Francisco now. Um, in my world, though, uh, the city is full of cable cars and zeppelins. Um, some of the ships in the harbor have been abandoned. There's uh, a ship... I note down the triads. Cousin Markov is... Uh, is in with the triads, so there are triads, but not Cousin Markov, in case the players encounter them, which they didn't. Um, the players arrive at the docks, they meet up with uh, U.S. Martial Art Mortimer, and he's just, he's Sam Elliott as a cowboy. You can, it's a big mustache, weathered face, gave him the Sam Elliott voice and everything. Um, and 
he explains that he's uh, arranged rooms for them at the Four Aces Saloon and Hotel. It's San Francisco, like, in the 1890s, it's, you know, kind of Wild West out there. Uh, so there are cowboys, horses, uh, the works. It's the steampunk Wild West. I was inspired heavily by the TV series The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., starring Bruce Campbell, which is a steampunk Wild West series that only lasted one season. Um... And so Art, you know, they go to the saloon to, to get their rooms, and as they're walking there, Art is just talking about the weird goings-on, and this is where I, I'm treating this like sort of a hub location, where they can meet up with Art and talk about the weird goings-on, and then take their pick of what they want to do. And so the selection of options I gave them, there are weird lights out near the Farallon Islands that can be seen from Alcatraz Island. Something strange is going out there. Nobody knows what. Um, also, the Dead Man's Hand Poker Tournament and Quick Draw Contest is coming up. The streets are filled with gangs and no good necks, and so uh, there's going to be a big festival that's also going to be a poker tournament and a quick draw contest. Uh, appealing there mostly, of course, to Lady Anna. Um, and then also, there's all this evidence that some big monster is on the loose terrorizing the countryside. Uh, when, the when a storm five days ago happened, when it cleared, four cattle and a cattle hand named Bill Elgin had been discovered dead, just ripped to shreds. And then two days later, the mayor was killed outside his home by some large animal. Nobody knows what it is. Uh, and then finally, the mines in the area aren't turning up much gold anymore but they've been unearthing an abundance of the strange glowing crystals uh, that the players have described or discovered previously. Um, and so I gave the players a chance to like settle in. They go to the four aces. There's a bar fight immediately. It's like a really scrappy wild westy kind of town. And the players are really enjoying this. Like Rath McGrath immediately just dives into the nearest brawl whenever he gets the chance uh, Morewood has his eye on the poker games, of course. Everybody's having a good time. Ultimately, they decide that they're going to look into the strange lights that have been seen uh, on the Farallon Islands. And uh, so they headed down a branch that was sort of cannibalized slash adapted from a D20 adventure module called Everything Goes by Owen Casey, or Casey Stevens. And uh, it's heavily adapted from this. I Basically, this is a site-based adventure uh, where, according to Owen Stevens' uh, version of it, it's uh, an occult uh, warehouse. It's basically a warehouse run by cultists who use it as, like, a black market for magical goods. And it's defended by, like, all manner of weird magical creatures and, like, the big bad guys are vampires. So I changed all of that. And ultimately, I sort of cut it down to using the map and all the locations and, like, just changing all of the monsters to be more appropriate. In this case, a lot of German soldiers, but I also have a lot of, like, clockwork soldiers and the ultimate uh, big bad that... I don't think they actually wound up encountering him, but I had him lurking in the shadows in case they encountered him, was going to be uh, a Martian uh, that has psionic abilities. 
but they didn't end up getting to him. That's another case of one of those things where uh, the player didn't actually trigger... <laughs> Everything goes. Everything goes. Who said that? Not me. Not me. Um, so I, what I wound up turning this into. Here's here's the ultimate plot because the adventure is a little less exciting to describe. It is just the players like going from room to room and looking over stuff. And I'll talk about it. But uh, the the sort of broad strokes of it is. Uh, the, there's an old mine there, and it has been co-opted by the German Martian Alliance and turned into a secret testing facility because they've it's full of these crystals and they're using them to power all these energy weapons that they're developing. So here's the secret facility where they're testing out all this, this new technology combining German and Martian tech and using these crystals to power it all. And on top of that... I wanted to have this facility be, like, there's a warehouse on one of the lower levels, and I just wanted it to be, like, the warehouse where the Ark of the Covenant is stored. I wanted it to be full of, like, weird, you know, artifacts and, and technology. Uh, I wanted to draw heavily upon the fact that, you know, much later in the wars, the, the Nazis were experimenting with the occult, and we hear all that stuff that, like... Wolfenstein is based around and all that. So I wanted to draw heavily upon that too. Um, and so the players like approach the entrance to this mine. They go down through it and they quickly realize that this is still like an active facility. They can hear uh, voices and, you know, people moving around. So they sneak their way in and, uh, they quickly find themselves in the warehouse section. And the warehouse section of this, I, there's a great list in this adventure module that I, uh, I have, that I drew heavily from, and I added a few items of my own. But for the, basically for the most part, I wanted to make this so that the players recognized that all this stuff was valuable, but it wasn't going to be like personally valuable to them. So I didn't want them to just go like loot crazy and take everything they found. So things like uh, uh, an obsidian skull, a human-sized skull of polished obsidian can be reliably dated to 7500 BC. It was made by an artisan from a lost Atlantis Age civilization. Uh, a crate with sarcophagus. The crate has been damaged by water and has begun to rot. Uh, the sarcophagus inside is an the mummy of an Egyptian mage. Anyone touching the mummy is cursed. Uh, you know, and then the approximate values for things like that. Uh, da Vinci portrait. This oil painting depicts the Renaissance man in the same posture and with the same background as the Mona Lisa. It has no signature. So just like weird artifacts, but nothing that the players are going to be like, oh, I take that immediately um they continue searching uh having a lot of like it's a, it was a lot of stealth encounters basically they'd encounter like some guards they'd have to subdue them and then like find a way to hide them and sneak around so they they don't uh they don't get detected and uh eventually they encountered uh, they went to the one of the upper levels of this uh, this mine facility, and this level is much more like luxuriant. 
And uh, obviously this would have been where like a vampire was, but I just adapted this to be uh, a human fast hero with a level 10. So she's really powerful. And I took away her, all her vampire abilities and just had like a big crazy fight with her. The players continued exploring. On one of the upper levels is where I had the psionic Martian, but they never wound up going that far. Uh, instead, they just sort of investigated as best that, as best they could and found their way back to uh, to San Francisco, like in the middle of the night, to meet with Art Mortimer and describe what they'd found. I guess the biggest revelation for them was it revealed that, oh, there was a German-Martian alliance going on. They found evidence of a German-Martian alliance. And they also found uh, more maps and like folders and files on some operation in Brazil, which they would invest wind up investigating at the start of the next adventure. And that's basically that's basically uh lights over Alcatraz. Are we ever gonna find out what that monster was? Hmm? The monster that ate the cattle and the stuff in the map. Ah, okay, so this is what I was saying. Uh I designed this like a hub, so the monster is its own adventure. They wound up that's one of the ones they're gonna do next. Okay, okay. Uh the not to get too ahead of things, but the next uh, chapter in this campaign begins with them returning to meet Art Mortimer, and he says while they were gone, the monster struck again. And so they move on to investigating that. And then sure enough, they do the poker tournament quick draw contest before moving on to Brazil. All right, there we go. But I, I keep saying like a Telltale game. Like the thing about Telltale games is... You do have these little paths, but they always end up converging at these bottleneck points. And so there's a limited amount of choice in like which way you go and which parts of the story you see, but they always end up sort of going to the same place. And, uh, and in this case as well, I wanted to give my players the opportunity to investigate as much as possible before moving on. But, you know, had they decided not to investigate the, the murders by the monster... I guess I probably would have let them if they wanted to just move on to Brazil right away. Um, before we move on to the tavern, because I figure that's what's next, I just wanted to say there's a note that keeps popping to my mind intermittently from my game uh, that I never mentioned, which is there was a magical item that they got when they raided that goblin laboratory. Uh and got all the, those crazy magic items that I forgot that is fairly important, which is uh, Magnus, the paladin, got a sword of reincarnation, which... That does seem important. <laughs> yeah, the trick is, if he dies when he's wielding that sword, he can immediately reincarnate, um, but he doesn't know what race he comes back as. Uh so he just turns like respawns, but as a new creature. Um, and that was just like kind of a constant thing of like, well, I've got it in case things look like they're really falling apart. Um, but yeah, I just feel like it's, it's so important. I've got to mention it at some point. <laughs> well, fair enough. Yeah. That's the thing, man. I mean, 
I suppose part of the appeal of D&D is also in its zen nature. You know, it's always fleeting. It encourages you to live in the moment. But at the same time, it is kind of a shame, like, that that because of the nature of D&D, there's no way, unless we literally, like, tape record every session, there's no way that we'd actually be able to remember it all. True. I mean, a lot of people stream their games now, so... Yeah, I think, I mean... At the same time, I I don't think I'd ever actually want to record my full campaign. I, might, I don't know. I don't I think mean, I'd I ever actually friend, revisit it. I have a friend who's been streaming while she plays games of D&D over the COVID break. And so, like, you just sort of get her view of, like, you know, Roll20 and everything. Um, but even, like, both, like... I don't know about her, but but definitely the DM of the game, like who runs that game, has said that he watches the like videos of that stream just to like stay appraised of like what the players did and everything. Um, <laughs> I guess that which, I guess that is handy, like if you're doing it while you're running that same campaign. Yeah, that that's the thing is like I think it may have like a real benefit if I could crack it i just don't like you know i don't want to have to put a huge amount of effort into the stream or anything i just want it to be like sort of recording so i can uh you know return to it later i get that what do you got for the tavern okay i initially i thought that i was gonna have to do another random one because i couldn't find what i was looking for but uh, no, I found it. I found it. What I have brought to the Tavern of Many Corners. That's exciting. Uh, what, what was the... Did, we came up with a name for this, didn't we? Yeah, the, the non-Euclidean tavern. The non-Euclidean tavern. tavern. Uh, what I have brought are encounters in the Mornland. Uh, do you, are you familiar with the Eberron campaign setting? Eh... Like, I I could be a lot more familiar, you know. I'm, I'm familiar with some things. I know, <laughs> I know about Oladra. I know about Lightning Rails. I know about, uh, what was it, Thrain? Is Thrain a nation? Thrain, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, see, so there's there's one that I got. Um, I know about Warforged. Yep. You know, I, I know bits and pieces. Well, uh, I once ran a campaign in Eberron. I think it was actually the campaign right after Ooh. Mines of Metal here, and Wheels. Here, let's, let, let's see how much I know Eberron. Is the Mornlands the place where the big war happened and now it's all effed up? That's exactly it. Nice. I'm I'm good enough. The most metal part of Mornland of the of Eberron is the Mornland. Um I set a campaign that I ran, and I believe it was the campaign that I ran immediately after Minds of Metal and Wheels 2. Uh and I set it in Eberron, and as soon as it was sort of like I can't remember how we decided it. I think we just sort of all picked Eberron as like a fun campaign setting we wanted to play around in. But uh, as soon as Eberron was decided on, I was like, Mornland, 
the players are going through the Morn lands. We got to go through the Morn lands. It's too cool because the Morn lands walk through Mordor. The Morn lands are like Chernobyl, but with magic. Like they, there was a huge war, and it's just magical fallout over this huge patch. Um, and so I found uh, these collections of short random encounters and adventures to be found in the Mornlands. I don't have the list. I, I I might have the list like deep in my notes, but I couldn't find it specifically. But these ones, like any Mornland encounters, are super fun because you can go way outside the norm. Like, I remember when my players were going through it, uh, I had them encounter a, 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 like, a mind flayer that had been magically melded with a displacer beast, um, which is hardcore. But also, like, it rained knives, it rained eyeballs at one point. Um, and so these, these ones... Uh, we're not the ones I was using, but they're still super super fun. They're from the Unearthed Arcana subreddit. They're written by a user named Raven Griswold. And these are just... I love them. Awesome things to happen in the Mornland. Uh, the Gargantua. This small forest is dominated by four absolutely massive redwood trees, which are actually the massive legs of a creature far too large to fathom. A Star Hulk spawn has made its lair here and attacks anyone passing through. After two rounds, a set of enormous jaws reaches down and gulps up the Star Hulk in one bite, leaving nothing but a few bloody stumps. The trees then shift as the Gargantua begins lumbering off. Fissures of glass. Hmm? I just went om nom nom. Om nom nom. The ground here is smooth and made of glass. A number of cracks in the ground spew glass dust in 15-foot cubic clouds, heavily obscuring anything inside them as well as inflicting 2d4 points of slashing damage. A glass zorn immune to non-magical slashing damage lurks here. It attacks anyone wearing an object made of glass or carrying gems, trying to grab and eat them. I like that. Um... There are tons of these. As I said, you can find them in the Unearthed Arcana subreddit. Uh, and they're really fun. The characters see a badly scarred cow in the distance convulse and suddenly collapse on the ground. It has been attacked by a pair of intellect devourers who are collecting mines to feed their brood. The intellect devourers are hidden in their burrow near the cow, which gives them an effective passive dexterity of 18. During the first round of combat, they use their devour intellect ability. And then their burrow contains four eggs and a non-combatant Ustilagor, a hatchling intellect devourer, along with the body of a previous adventurer. Man, just throw Molotov in there, guys. That's yeah, really. <laughs> um. So yeah, let me here. I'll do one more, one more, uh, one more Eberron, or sorry, uh, one more Mornland encounter. The Nightmare Palace, a Dalkir. Using the statistics of an Ultraloth with at-will confusion, has broken free of its prison in Kyber and is turning the area into a, in a few mile radius into its own personal canvas upon which they will create a masterpiece of reshaped flesh. Plants, animals, and, gr and the ground itself have all been stretched into grotesque shapes and changed into striking arrays of colors. Pairs of Dolgrims treat each as two hobgoblins who share the same square, patrol the area, but generally avoid conflict. The Dalkir is curious and interested in finding new subjects for its artwork uh, more than anything. 
They are welcoming and communicate telepathically with the characters and offer to transform them into beautiful new forms. And they won't take no for an answer. <laughs> I'm going to Cronenberg up that place. I got, yeah, I got a fun uh, fun Ultraloth encounter not, not too long ago. Oh, yeah? Yeah, but, uh, you know, save those stories for another time. I don't want to spoil my later stories for early times. <laughs> fair, fair. Well, now I have a special thing for you. We got a menu for once in this dang old tavern. You know, what we got is we got the menu from a location by the name of the Sit-Down Arha Pop-Up. <laughs> uh... This is a reference to uh, it's like sort of an occult thing is like the the Citra, Citra Arha. It's like uh, the dark side. It's like um, in, in my game, Citra Arha is like the night side eclipses home base. Basically, it's like um, sort of like uh, it's almost like a space station, but in the far realms. So it's like a space station, but like outside of reality instead of being in outer space um and anyway so so they call that base uh citra arha which is based on like an actual occult term and i just bumped my hand on the desk by accident and <laughs> um anyway so so the mpoc has been operating there for a little while and so my brother's current character, Hexaquila Calavera, a uh, lizard man, uh, fighter, and barbarian, his uh, sort of side hustle is that he uh, he cooks. He's a he's an interplanar adamantine chef, in fact. Um, and that's a whole other story. But along the road to becoming an interplanar adamantine chef, one of his uh, projects was he started the sit down arha pop-up in reference to the citra arha and uh let me hit you with the delicious things that he served up there we got the appetizers first we got deathlands fried blooming onion paired with red ale we got giant bat karage paired with soju bombs we got Cranium Rat Rangoon paired with rice wine. We got kimchi and goodberry baguettes with bacon spread and fancy cheeses paired with red or white wine. We got Giant Shark in a Blanket paired with cider. We got yellow curry oysters with boar lardon paired with green tea. Now for the entrees. You can choose between giant soft-shell crab sandwich with spicy remoulade en croissant, served with cubed slaughter melon on potato chips, paired with strawberry daiquiris, or grilled giant octopus on a stick with good berry rice wine glaze, served with sticky rice and paired with old fashions. And do you have room for dessert, sir? Because there are two options. One is giant scorpion egg brulees with spiced rum whipped cream paired with galliano and green tea. And, or you could choose chocolate caramel lava cakes that are almost bigger than your head but not quite to fit with goblin law. The foremost goblin law being never eat anything bigger than your head. <laughs> uh, and these things aren't paired with anything, but the caramel filling, it says, is really boozy, and it has lots of whiskey and fireball. 
Oh, great. Lots of fireball. <laughs> In the caramel. Damn, dude, you know, made me really hungry. Yeah, I thought it might. I, I mean, I, I get real hungry doing these sessions. We we had a whole session where you like had to serve a bunch of tables. It was wild. And they had like he had to get the orders right. And then like <laughs> right after you're you playing D&D &D the... Overcooked. Yeah, basically, right after they got all their orders, they immediately started disagreeing over who had ordered what. And they were like, uh oh. <laughs> Anyway, that uh, <laughs> that's what I brought to the tavern today. I thought it was a it's good very red wall of you addition. Well, and I mean, we went on a whole thing last time, didn't we? About yeah, exactly about the food. food. So, I, I talked about my my stock tavern menu that uh, I like to bust out if players actually ask what they can order at the tavern where they get their quests. Well, now you can uh, include an even upper scale menu for people who want the best in the planes it all sounds so good that if i ever did that i'd feel like i'd have to provide like food for my players yeah that's the trick actually eh? that reminds me man on the i think it was the dungeons and dragons subreddit uh one of the various rpg subreddits but somebody put together like themed meals for their D, &D game and like really went over overboard with it like they made like lord of the rings style lembus bread and then folded it into like banana leaf pouches and they went and they got like old cheeses and like mead and stuff um it just it looked like an amazing spread and also very immersive in the game I hey, this just reminds me did you hear about that new assassin's creed game uh oh wait it's is it vikings yeah, so they they used to call it Ass Creed. Now they call it Ass Mead. Ass <laughs> God. <laughs> Shout out to the other CNC hey podcast. Not me. Not me. Not Mead. Not Mead. Anything else? No, that's everything. That's that a good short episode. Hope you enjoyed, everybody. Uh, if you want to get in touch, you can get in touch with me at narnog on twitter n-a-r underscore n-o-g and if you want to get in touch with mcgill you can hit us up on facebook and reach him there he'll see that i'll see that too and uh our wordpress our, our wordpress, WordPress. compare and campaign compare and wordpress campaign. com. that's right and uh anything else not me not me either all right take care guys